Welcome again to the Inspired Leader Podcast, the series in which we explore the sources of inspiration of leaders from many different walks of life. I'm Andy Bird, and it's a tremendous privilege today for me to be meeting Commodore Jerry Kidd, Commanding Officer of HMS Queen Elizabeth, the Royal Navy's new state-of-the-art aircraft carrier. It's the largest ship we've ever operated in our thousand-year history. So for me, of course, it was a great privilege and a great honour to be the first seagoing captain of that ship. Commander Sea is a lonely place to be, and you have to lean back on your experience, which is vital, your inner self-confidence, which is vital, and you have to trust your intuition. So, Jerry, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much indeed for meeting me. No, delighted, Andy, and it's great to be with you today. Great stuff. Well, listen, I had to start, first of all, by asking about this ship. Mm. So, the Queen Elizabeth, I believe it's 65,000 tonnes. A third, a third of a kilometre long. Yes, that's right. Four football pitches you can fit on the on the deck. Yes. It's a wonder it ever floats. <laughs> yes, <laughs> but yeah. my first question, what was it like for the first time setting sail from the harbour? Well, it's quite incredible. I mean, for the United Kingdom, for the Royal Navy, it's the largest ship we've ever operated in our thousand-year history. So for me, of course, it was a great privilege and a great honour to be the first seagoing captain of that ship. But also to recognise that for the UK and for us as taxpayers, it was a significant investment in our security and uh, this great ship and Han, her sister, HMS Prince of Wales, which is in build now, is a real commitment, if you like, to Britain playing its full part in the world. So that's all well and good, but sitting in the captain's chair, driving the ship out, all that pressure and that weight of expectation yeah. sits quite heavily. But of course, it's a complete privilege. And uh, yes, there's a few nerves, but you know, when you've got a, a ship's company of a thousand people who are highly trained and well-motivated, Everyone knows their job really well. Uh, it's a well-slicked oil machine. So uh, for me, it's quite easy to keep a light touch on the tiller. So I've heard you've, you've said that you know, being the captain of the ship is the greatest job in the world. You've, you've led the uh, royal, mm. illustrious, you know, you've had an incredible career. What is it about the role that you find so enjoyable, so inspiring? I think what's fascinating about the military command when you're in charge of a ship, and I've been captain of frigates, uh, patrol boats, and three aircraft carriers now, is that um, you can shape things your own way in a ship. It is probably, and many people sort of cast an eye and say, you know, being the captain of a ship is the last bastion of dictatorial command, you know, control, because, you know, the captain's word is that's it, that's the way it is. Especially when you're away from the harbour and you're offshore. You're not connected to society in the same way as you are normality. And so particularly when things go wrong or you have emergencies, whether it's a fire or a flood or an aircraft crashes on your deck, or indeed if you're going to combat operations, um, the only your decision-making process is it has to be very quick and has to be accurate and has to be um, intuitive. And so the captain's role at sea is very, very special indeed. It takes years to, I think, to really build the skill sets required for that. You can't just sort of outsource uh, the captaincy of a ship and, and recruit someone from outside uh, the Royal Navy to do that sort of role. And what was it made you want to do it in the first place? Because, I mean, you know, when you yes. were a young man, sort of yes. thinking about your career ahead of you. Well, of course, I was at school through the 70s and early 80s, you know, just before Thatcher came along. And, um, and, I, and I do think society now is much more materialistic. I certainly never thought about going into the city and making a lot of money or going to big business. I mean, money certainly wasn't a motivator uh, for me as a teenager. But I look at my own sons now who are teenagers and they are absolutely motivated in that way. And that's been the change. And so I always knew that I wanted to do something in public sector. But um, my father being the army, my family have done army and navy for many years. 
And so for me, it was actually quite a natural thing to want to do. I was always a quite outward bound sort of type person. And so the military was a bit of a calling. And I did a day at sea in a very fast patrol boat in the English Channel. Uh, and I was looked after by a very young lieutenant who was very smart, very bright and able. And he inspired me. He, he was probably in his early 20s, but to me as a 15-year-old, on, on the sea acquaint, uh, he was, uh, you know, very, very wise and uh, very, very uh, debonair. And, uh, and I thought, do you know what? I want to be like him. <laughs> and so the following week, I went into school and I saw the careers uh, teacher. And I said, I want to join the Royal Navy. And it, that's where it started. And a year later, I went to the Admiralty Interview Board as a 16-year-old, uh, where you have to pass. It's a three-day interview where you, uh, I was then offered a commission. So it's very odd as a 16-year-old being offered a job for life, yes. but that's where it was in those yeah. days. So, uh, so it's really it was, it's to do something different, it's to do something outward, do something for, for the in terms of public sector, and something I knew I'd enjoy, and it's turned out to be just the ticket. Yeah, it makes me wonder the guy that inspired you all those years ago. Did you, did you know where you've ended up? No, <laughs> no, I doubt. I think I was just a, one, a, one of those annoying schoolboys. Those are annoying, annoying people. Extraordinary role he's played. I mean, it's, fa- it's fascinating as I've talked to people about their leadership and their development, how many people have mm. found individuals as a particular source of inspiration. He's obviously one for you. Have there been others in your career, people that have really influenced the way you've grown and um, thought about leadership? Yes, and I think this comes bound about how you get motivated yourself. I think we all meet th- hundreds and thousands of people uh, in our lives, uh, whether it's in the pub, restaurants, in your workplace, or your family. I think everyone can identify probably three or four people that has made a major impact on them. And uh, that young lieutenant I mentioned just now was certainly one of them. Uh, my first captain, I was a very young officer, midshipman, when I was 18. The captain of my ship, HMS Royal, was, was an officer called Captain James Weatherall. Uh, who died sadly two weeks ago. I'm going to his funeral next week. But he showed me as a very wise old captain of HMS Art Royal in 1985 what it was to be a balanced, thinking, emotionally able captain of a ship. He led his people with balance, poise, style and panache. And I remember as an 18-year-old watching him operate 25, 30 years ahead of me in the Navy. But the way he managed to uh, shape that community of 1,200 people on that ship, to inspire them to get over the rough times, impacted me hugely as a young man. And I've tried to continue that. I've also met ratings, <clears throat> who are well down the pecking order in terms of rank and rate, who, for not much money, go away from their families for nine months of the year. And too many to mention, but um, I've had several ratings and senior rates under my command over the years, who I look at with awe who go to sea for years and years and years. And the other person that really inspired me and motivated me was someone from history, actually, um, Admiral Cunningham. I've read his autobiography many times, and he was our Admiral in the Mediterranean in the war, in the Second World War. And his exploits were, were truly inspirational in the most darkest times for this country when we were fighting Nazi Germany in that environment. And he was perhaps, for me, above Nelson, the epitome of a true natural leader who could get people to do things they'd rather not do and survive and win. And that's the key thing. So in terms of the lessons you've learned from him and from now your own experience over many years, I mean, you when you go and set sail, mm. you say you've got 900 
people or so on the boat. You're away from land for a long time. I mean, people listening will probably be struggling to sort of motivate their people nine to five. Yes. <laughs> but for you for doing it weeks yes. on end. Yes. How do, you, how do you bring that inspiration to people? How do you manage the spirit and the culture within the organisation that you're leading? Yes. No, that's a good point. I mean, this, my current ship, HMS Queen Elizabeth, is a new aircraft carrier. Um, she's got lots of new innovation, lots of new challenges. It's a new manning model. We have a lot less people on this aircraft carrier than we would normally. And of course, we've literally joined the ship a year ago and we've jumped on board the ship. We've got her working, got her to see and done her trials. And now we're about to take her to operations with her aircraft. And so shaping that ship for me as the first captain was the key part. If you set the foundations of culture, and by that I mean morale, the physicality, the cleanliness, the routine, what we call the standing operating procedures. So people know what they're doing and what is expected of them and crucially to what standard, uh, then you're on the way to success. But setting those foundations takes time. It can't be done in a heartbeat. And so you can't get frustrated as a leader when you day one, when we joined my ship in Resyth, Scotland, to expect that ship to be operating uh, seamlessly from the get-go. It just doesn't happen that way. So part of the leader, you have to be patient, not strategic patience over years, but you have to be tactically patient week to week, and you must make sure you understand there's a growth path. You know, you have to come of age. And so for my ship, where we've got about 1,000 people, going to 1,600 people with air crew, that journey takes about three to four years. We're year two into this ship. And so we're well on that glide path. But the crucial thing is, as the captain, is making sure your officers understand what you expect. And I lay that out in a very simple three-page letter to each of them, which they all get before they join my ship. So they are absolutely clear about what I expect. And that's their first benchmark, if you like, their first litmus about what they need to deliver. Could you give us a sense in that letter, I mean, obviously there's going to be quite a bit in there, but at the heart of it, what are the key things in there that you'd be looking for? So I have always made on the basics. There is way too much, Andy, management speak in the world at the moment, which glosses over uh, the realities and facts and the basics. We're humans. You know, we are built from DNA, built on the plains of East Africa. We are built for medium distance objects at medium speed and looking at 24 hours ahead. That's what you and I are programmed, our software is programmed for. So you must play to that. Management speak and modern corporate culture and philosophy, to my mind, and this is my impersonal view, is wrong. It's vacuous words and it drives me mad. So in the military, my ship, I try and talk the language that people understand. Honesty, loyalty, speak plainly. Uh, give orders out succinctly. Leadership is not a complex business. And if you play to the basics, everything else follows. So my letter of guidance is three pages, and that encapsulates for me um, what I expect. And I, the officer then joins my ship. I sit him down for a joining interview, and I reiterate those things. And the three key ones is honesty, loyalty, and professionalism. And professionalism is a word that's used... Uh, like confetti, it's like the word passion. These throwaway words that mean everything to everyone, it seems. But when you analyse it and you ask someone what does professional mean, they stumble. So I'm always very clear with my men that for me in the Royal Navy and when we go to combat where there is no prizes of coming second, because that means a coffin, 
professionally means doing things properly. So those are the basics I view right from the start. And I asked the officer and senior when they joined, do they understand that? And do they want to come back to me? Any reflections on my letter so that we understand each other. But the bottom line is, is it's my way or the highway. Mm. Now I do listen to people, of course, we're a, we're a learning organisation in the Royal Navy. Uh, we take great pride in our structures and our leadership ethos. But ethos it is, and ultimately, uh, leadership is about giving orders, making sure people understand that and getting on with it. So as you've talked so far, you've mentioned very early on the sort of sense of responsibility. You've mentioned some of the pressures that come with leadership. Mm. And as you're describing that, your role clearly is absolutely central. How do you manage your own energy and spirit to make sure that your present, your, your influence is as positive as it possibly can be 100% of the time? First, it's a really good question, and I don't think there's a, there's a neat answer to that. Everyone is individual, and in positions of responsibility, especially at the top of the shop with the CEO or the captain of a warship, I imagine the, the challenges and the self-doubt at times is very similar. Uh, we're all animals, and we need to be confident in what we do. Um, but to answer your question, how do you keep going? I have an extremely good deputy, my second-in-command, who's a command qualified officer himself, who's been captain of his own ships in the past. But in this ship, an aircraft carrier, um, he's a very experienced officer. And I use him above all else to benchmark myself behind a closed door. We call it red teaming or self-reflection or looking in the mirror, call it what you wish. It is not 360 reporting, which in my view is ridiculous barking and wrong. It doesn't provide the right feedback to a person because people are always inflected by their prejudices and politics, politics of the small p. But for me, having my deputy, I call him the commander, his ability to shut the door and someone sit down and say, sir, you know, I think you got that wrong, or may I suggest this is very important. And I will ask him, I'll say, how do you think that went? Um, and that's important. My motivation, when you're captain of a ship when you're offshore is an extremely lonely position. I eat on my own. I don't go to the officer's mess, I'm not allowed. That's the privilege of the officers to have their own club on board. Commander Sea is a lonely place to be. And you have to lean back on your experience, which is vital. Your inner self-confidence, which is vital. And you have to trust your intuition. You won't get decisions right all the time. So for me, when I make a decision that's wrong, and I realise in hindsight it's wrong, you just have to get over it and move on. So... You have to be confident that 90% of the time you're right. That may seem arrogant, but you know what? In leadership positions, there's a fine line between arrogance and self-confidence. You must be self-confident to lead people. If you're not self-confident, you're done. People won't trust you. You Leaders have to be strong. In my world, when you look at real leaders that make success in war, which is the ultimate test for us as leaders, in the commercial world, it's stock and share price and success of a company, maybe, uh, for us, it's going out, finding the enemy, fixing him, killing him and coming home alive. Brutal, but it's true. That's it. An element of verging on arrogance can be quite useful at times, but it's a fine line. So I'm interested, you talked there about you know the importance of your experience and drawing on that experience. Mm. Just reflecting back, are there any seminal moments in your career where you've really learned something very important? Any sort of particular incidents or challenges you've been through? Yeah, the, the greatest learning points is always when you, you have the greatest disasters. Um, success is easy. Anyone can lead when things are going well. 
because uh, everyone feels good about themselves. Yes. And imagine the commercial world, you're making money and <laughs> having bonuses and uh, you're employed. You know, the military success is when everything's running slickly and you've done your job well and it's all beers in the bar and medals, tier medals. No, I think the seminal moments is when you have a disaster or a, you know, a fire, we've got dead bodies on board or, um, you know, those are the moments you, you, of course, you click into auto in your training, which is vital. Uh, but that's when you have to make intuitive decisions in quick pace. So I look back at my career, I've had a number of incidents where, you know, we've had a major fire on board, for instance, where, you know, the very viability of the ship, keeping the ship afloat has been to the fore, where you, you're in shock for quite a few days afterwards in, in reflecting mode. Or you've gone to operations in Bosnia or the Gulf where, you know, people's lives are absolutely at risk and you're going into the unknown. And I think that's the moments where you really, you have to be extremely careful because it's all very easy in training. You can go into auto, but when you're confronted with real world situations, you have to be quite dynamic in your decision making. And that's sometimes when you're seeking your pants based on experience. So um, to answer your question, I think probably the, the thing that shaped me the most was commanding my first frigate, HMS Monmouth, uh, back in 2004-2006, away around the globe on my own. My riding instructions from my admiral was go to the Mediterranean. We had a several very sensitive operations in there in the eastern Mediterranean, which I can't talk about here, which put me right on the spot as a 36-year-old in command of a fighting frigate, um, a long way from home on my own, making my own decisions and knowing if I made a mistake, they would have strategic impact and would embarrass the UK militarily and politically. And I was out there for a number of months working very closely with a number of agencies and other countries. And I was the British military officer in, in that area. That experience for me at a very young age with 180 men looking at me every day with a ship worth uh, four to 500 million pounds of my responsibility with a very expensive helicopter on the back with special forces embarked, that was a truly shaping experience, which set me up very well for aircraft carrier command. Jerry, it's been fascinating hearing you know, your perspectives, your experiences. I'm interested now, just to conclude, if you could give one piece of advice <laughs> to the people listening from your perspective about how they might find inspiration as leaders and based on your experience, what, what tips would you give them? What insights would you provide? I think first thing, understand that everyone's basic motivations are the same. Health, wealth and happiness Whilst that's relative, for one man that could be owning a Ferrari and to the next woman it could be owning the biggest house on the street, down to just having a nice new car if you're a youngster. People's basic motivations are the same and therefore as a leader you must always play to those. People fundamentally want to do a good job. Not many people jump out of bed in the morning and think to themselves, I want to mess up today. If you can tap into what makes people tick by communication with them and understanding them, you're on a complete winner. And so I think recognizing that people want to be part of a tribe, they want to be part of a club, they want to be part of a company, and they want that family atmosphere and they want to be listened to and valued. And that means that the leader has to get his eyes or her eyes in front of that person as much as possible to look into their brain. That's the number one thing. And the second one, I think, for the leader is knowing that when you're confronted with a decision where there's two possible routes forward, always go for the decision that best serves the organisation. So if you're in the horns of a dilemma, if you choose the option that best serves the organisation at the time, 
with my ship or a company or your family. In my experience, 99 times out of 100, you'll have made the right decision. Great thought to leave us with. Jerry, kids, thank you very much indeed. Pleasure. Pleasure.